Hi, everybody. Welcome to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Ivry. Today, a memoir sheds light on Jewish Salonika. In the 19th century, the Mediterranean port city of Salonika had a thriving Jewish community. That community was established nearly 2,000 years earlier, and it was largely made up of Sephardic Jews. Saadi Bissalel Alevi was, for a while, an esteemed member of that community, and he had a hand in a lot of pots. He was a journalist, a publisher, a singer, and a composer. He also happened to be a punctilious memoirist. In fact, his memoir is the earliest known Ladino language memoir around, and it was all but lost until Aaron Rodrigue found a copy of it on a library shelf in Israel. Ladino is also known as Judeo-Spanish, and it's language spoken by the descendants of Jews who were expelled from Spain in the 15th century. Aaron Rodrigue is a professor of history at Stanford University in California. He's joining us on the podcast today along with Sarah Abravaya-Stein, a historian at UCLA. The two of them edited the memoir, which is out now in English and Ladino. Aaron and Sarah, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you. Thank you. So... I wonder, Aaron, if you can tell us, who was Saadi Basalel Alevi? Well, Saadi Basalel Alevi um, is actually one of the most important figures in uh, 19th century Salonika, and we have known of him because in 1875, he uh, published the first Ladino newspaper, La Epoca, which continued until 1911 after his death. So he was known... Uh, to historians of Sephardic Jewry through that journal, and also snippets of this memoir were published by his son, Sam Levy, in Ladino uh, newspapers in the 20th century, but also in French translation. But none of it was really seen as one text. And um, as a result, uh, we only had very partial views about the life of Saadi and of what he did and, in fact, what he had been doing before 1875. And this is the first time that we really have an opportunity to see the memoir in its totality. How did you come upon the full text? Can you tell us that story? Well, it was actually a long time ago. And uh, I was uh, doing other research in Jerusalem uh, at the what is now called the Israel National Library. And this was in the manuscript room. And as I was going through the catalog, I hit upon a mention of this memoir. And then I did some sleuthing in the catalog and found it there and then called it up and then saw uh, this particular work. Do you have any idea, either of you, of how it got from Salonika to a library shelf in Israel, in Jerusalem? Well, we have uh, some information because uh, the memoir itself was accompanied by a fairly approximate transliteration of the Ladino cursive into uh, Latin characters by the grandson of Sadi Alevi, who had emigrated to Rio de Janeiro in the 1920s, and his son, Silvio, in 1978, donated it to the Israel National Library, writing an English preface saying that it is his hope that eventually this manuscript will see 
the light of day. So in some ways, we've done what his great grandson intended. So you had your hand on the manuscript, but there was this problem of translation, and there are plenty, or at least maybe not plenty, but a handful of scholars like yourselves who can read and understand Ladino. But neither of you took on the translation. Sarah, why not? Well, the Ladino language has changed dramatically from the time at which Saadi, as he was known by contemporaries, wrote his memoirs. And it was changed not only because languages are organic and, and all change over time, but because after the dismantlement collapse of the Ottoman Empire and in other national contexts, including the United States and Israel and Spain, in all of these places, Ladino continued to be rather aggressively transformed by speakers and transliterators and translators. Um, Ladino itself, over the course of the 19th century, was gallicized. Many French words were introduced, spelling was changed, uh, roots from, um, from Turkish, from Arabic, from Hebrew were less likely to be utilized in favor of root words from Romance languages. Um, and our hope in working with the translator Isaac Jerusalmi was to turn to someone who has skills that are incredibly rare. Um, he grew up in Istanbul in a milieu that was uh, of traditional Judeo-Spanish culture with Ladino as, as his mother tongue. Um, and he studied classical philology at Istanbul University and later for the rabbinate at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. And through his studies as well in Semitics at the University of Paris-Sorbonne, during all of these various aspects of his scholarship and life experience, he acquired a knowledge not only of Ladino, but of the what traditionally in the 19th century might have been called the various Semitic languages that infused its um, linguistic basis and has an intimacy with what we might call a historic Ladino that is not reflected even in the pages of the early 20th century Ladino press that my own research and Aaron's own research has focused on but that became lost over the course of the late 19th and certainly over the course of the 20th century. And by now, though, um, one can find Ladino sources transliterated uh, and still published, the, the nature, the texture of Saadi's Ladino is a historic one and requires um, the, a translator's care who understands intimately the complex linguistic base of this historic language. When we think of Sephardic memoirs, particularly when we think about them through a present-day lens, very often what comes to mind are sort of nostalgic accounts that bring to life this intimate world of extended family and friends and places. For example, if you consider a book like uh, Out of Egypt by André Asiman or Baghdad Yesterday by Sassan Somer. But that kind of approach or genre isn't exactly what you get with Saadi. Is that right? Absolutely. That's true. There are moments of touching nostalgia in this book. But nostalgia is not the engine of this memoir. And this really surprised us as we poured over the text and thought about how to frame it. In fact, 
Saadi has various motives in, in writing this book. He includes uh, on the first page um, a preface that describes his interest in publishing his memoir is to capture a lost world that is being abandoned as young people turn to new norms and um, new new clothing patterns and uh, new habits of, of life. Um, that is one motivation, to capture a world that, as he said, is is changing. On the other hand, he is clearly also motivated by personal trauma, uh, the trauma that he experienced after he was um, excommunicated at the hand of the chief rabbi of Salonika, after supporting um, certain reformist uh, impulses within the city. And the writ of excommunication, which is passed on to Saadi in 1874, um, is immensely traumatic to a man who was um, deeply enmeshed in the city's Jewish community, who by all measure was um, religiously minded, even if he was also a pioneer of certain secular reformations of culture and, and, and community and personal practice. And it is out of that trauma that he pens his life and that he views his city. So it is an incredibly curious mixture of, um, of upset, of occasional vitriol, of regret, and also of nostalgia. Yeah, um, I, I think that's exactly right. And in some ways, this is a kind of an apologia. Uh, a, a, a retroactive justification of everything that he did after the excommunication. He starts to write in 1881 and pretty much finishes in 1890 by adding and also adds a few pieces later on. But the whole uh, thrust of this memoir is is not really nostalgia, though, as Sarah said, there are uh, small nostalgic elements here and there, but in some ways a kind of a, um, an attack against superstition and, and, and a description of ways in which rabbis misuse their authority in uh, excommunication, cabals that... Uh, kind of uh, developed around certain groups, and indeed, um, the the his own excommunication is a result of a kind of a plot ar uh, uh, around a very old chief rabbi Asher Kovo at that time. In fact, the whole memoir is everything he describes about Salonika is really leads up to that moment of excommunication, and it's kind of interesting uh, that it is when he is describing the cherem, the excommunication, uh, he begins saying, my story starts here, even though it's in the middle of his memoir. Uh, and so this is why this is a kind of an odd genre, because it's not about really how he became to be who he was. It's not really a description of a world gone by, although there is that, but it really is a justification of himself, his own defense. I wonder if you could give some examples from the memoir of the ways in which the rabbis in Salonika did kind of meddle in daily life. Well, the examples are legion. Uh, in fact, uh, the first part of the memoir is full 
of sort of case studies, as it were. For example, there is、um, violin that is used in a musical feast. One of the major rabbis, the, the, his bet noir, as it were, the, the person he is most、uh, annoyed at,、uh, Rav Shaul.、Um, Has never heard of the violin, believes that this is a newfangled and unacceptable thing to use in a Jewish setting, and excommunicates. This is just one example.、Uh, there will be cases where、um, somebody is accused of having broken rules of Shabbat, and uh, and then、um, through hearsay he will excommunicate. Of course, these these are all through the prism of. What Saadi's writing?、Mm-hmm. I mean, it's,、oh, sorry. Go ahead, Sarah. Well, I was going to comment about some other aspects that are interesting of this.、Um, Saadi's son is also vilified by the religious establishment at the same time that Saadi himself is. The charge that is actually pinned upon Saadi's son is that he is seen smoking on the Sabbath.、Um, The episode that Aaron mentioned earlier about the rabbi who is outraged at the utilization of a newfangled instrument that he has never heard of or seen, let alone heard its music—that is, the violin—that results in his issuing of a cherem again on the musician. He learns what this instrument is from his wife, who explains to her husband that the musician is indeed playing a violin. And I mention these two cases because. Um, Saadi, though animated by a fascination, truly an obsession with power relations in Salonika, in attempting to convey, to exonerate himself, to convey his own innocence and、um, justice as he sees it in the city, he cannot but reveal the kind of subtle, intimate details about daily life,、um, about the way in which change. Came to be manifest in very practical matters: when and where, and on what day you smoke a cigarette, and what instrument a musician might play、uh, at a at a gathering,、um, that are opaque in scholarly sources and in many of the other sources on nineteenth-century Salonika that we have at our disposal. It's interesting too, though. I mean, looking at it now, you see these tensions. The rabbis they don't want you to smoke on. This day, or you know, don't use this violin. It's unfamiliar to me. I mean, when you think about the fact that we're talking about Salonika of the 19th century and the waning days, really, of the Ottoman Empire, it's the tension that afflicted the empire, every group in the empire, of the traditional versus modernity and the onset of modernity. Yes, and I think this is where I, I think this memoir really is、uh, very, very important because it's the first personal narrative that we have. That really catches that moment when、uh, the very traditional world of、uh, Salonika Jewry, which is a, the largest Jewish community in the Judeo-Spanish world, and in fact is more than half of the city,、uh, although evolving over the centuries, remaining within the framework of tradition, is going to tip over into a relentlessly more modern and modernizing. Kind of community adopting French through the school network of the Alliance Israelite Universelle, being very involved with trade and commerce, Salonika becoming a boom city, and、um, uh, profound transformations taking place. And、uh, this 
memoir um, captures precisely the internal power relations and the beginning of the change before it kind of completely tips over into the other direction. And therefore, it really is an extraordinary historical source. And to come back to something Sarah said earlier, um, it's also a snapshot of Ladino before it became massively transformed through especially French. So that the, the even in Salonika, the f- Ladino spoken two generations later is uh, quite, quite different uh, than the Ladino spoken here. And Isaac Jerusalemi, of course, was an incredibly erudite scholar, you know, um, could, uh, as you know, from in the extensive glossary that he prepared, uh, was able to trace or to show the the origins of a lot of the words, mostly from uh, he, whether they are Hebrew, Turkish, uh, Italian, uh, of course, largely Spanish, but archaic uh, Spanish, uh, all of these things um, before, in fact, this language was kind of transformed. And the transformation of language goes in tandem with the transformation of that traditional society. I wonder if for each of you, there was one particular detail or anecdote that was unexpected or revelatory in the memoir that you can share with us. I mean, something that just struck you as, you know, completely delightful and improbable. Well, one of the things I can think of, actually, I'm not sure it's necessarily delightful, but it was kind of striking to me, was um, there is one particular episode when he is describing uh, certain events that are happening. Um, women, uh, women's clothing at that time, there were, there were certain fashions with lots of fur. And then there began to develop um, uh, certain kinds of diseases that uh, initially were associated with like heat and people overwearing and whatever. But through some sleuthing, uh, certain rabbis and others discovered that in fact, uh, some of the fur that women were wearing was breeding ground for contagion because of, uh, uh, I presume, fleas or other things that could easily uh, jump from one to another, and that was a kind of a vector of disease. And so it's not necessarily delightful, but it is actually <laughs> a very interesting way. And then there is then a, ben- a rabbinical ban on the wearing of these kind of furs. Uh-huh. And people follow that. And so I thought that was kind of really interesting. Yeah. What about you, Sarah? Well, this isn't um, a single episode I can point to. But I think what I'm left with, for me, is most vivid, is his description of space. Mapping Salonika mentally or on paper, mapping historic Jewish Salonika is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And Aaron and I agonized at great length over the production of three maps that are represented in the book that um, I think it's safe to say no one looking at casually could imagine the kind of storm and drong that underlay the production of, of these maps. Because not only do we lack reliable historic maps of the city, um, names change, of course, over time. Um, and places were renamed with the transition of authority in the city of Salonika, and especially um, with the transition from Ottoman to Greek rule. 
And also in the wake of a devastating fire in 1917 that destroyed the uh, port and the Jewish quarter, which was close to the port, Mm -hmm. and after which the Greek authorities chose to remap the city, moving Jewish neighborhoods to uh, the periphery. Now, to get back to Saadi, we agonize over um, how to represent the city on paper, and he represents an entirely different city. He represents, um, speaks of women's marketplaces that I had never heard of. He speaks of a city so dense that a man shooting a gun to rid a courtyard of a stray cat, it is so loud that it causes his neighbor, who is pregnant, a pregnant woman in the next uh, home, to go into spontaneous labor because Mm -hmm. the sound just echoes through her home so close to his. Um, He describes uh, a city with cafes, with homes, with hidden doors, with passages that people run through with great crowds in times of of crisis and and unrest. So it's the vividness of um, the physical city, uh, the lived city that interests me uh, among the most, I would say, of, of this memoir. Saadi describes a time for the Jews in Salonika, uh, which was quite vibrant. And, of course, that vitality didn't actually survive the Holocaust. Most of the Jews of Salonika were deported and killed. I wonder what kind of Jewish community is in Salonika now, if at all? Most of the Jews of Salonika um, perished in the Holocaust. Uh, they were deported to Auschwitz in 1943, including Saadi's descendants, including his uh, son, Daoud, or David Daoud, who was, had become an Ottoman official who was in his 80s, and other descendants. So this is, there is some poignancy to this kind of um, um, uh, text, uh, this memoir of a very vibrant Jewish community, um, and at that time uh, there are about approximately fifty thousand Jews in the city. Um, now there are barely a thousand, and this is one of the highest death rates of any one place. I mean, comparable to a lot of places in Poland and elsewhere, and uh, it is really a death blow to this core city of. Um, the Judeo-Spanish world and of Ladino culture uh, because together with, of course, the deportation of the community, um, there is an erasure, of course, of that culture. Um, the archives scattered, the, the, the kind of complete almost disappearance um, uh, from not only that city, but in fact of that world uh, where it it had been really a fixture since um, the arrival of the Sephardim from the Iberian Peninsula and which actually had um, centuries ago and which even before then had had a Greek-speaking Jews in, from the Ottoman Empire. So uh, there is now a very small remnant community um, that uh, is in Salonika, but obviously there is really none of this Judeo-Spanish world as we see in this in this text and that is another source of richness because i think through this first person narrative we we really get a very intimate um uh, view of a of a world we've lost 
Aaron, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. Aaron Rodrigue and Sarah Abravaya-Stein are the editors of A Jewish Voice from Salonika, the Ladino memoir of Saadi Besalel Alevi. The memoir was translated by Isaac Jerusalmi, and it's out now from Stanford University Press. If you like our podcast, I have a great idea. Share it with your friends and family. Send them a link from our website, tabletmag.com, and make sure that they get Vox Tablet every week. Here's how. Help them subscribe to Vox Tablet on iTunes or on any other MP3 distributor. That way they will never miss an episode. Julie Subram produces Vox Tablet. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Thank you so much for listening. Please join us again next week.